The title for this message is uh, titled, The Better Sacrifice, The Better Sacrifice. This is the second message in the chapter 10 of Hebrews. The first part was also called The Better Sacrifice. And as we come back to Hebrews 10 today, I want to just quickly review that last time when we were in this chapter, that we saw that Christ's sacrifice is superior to all of the Old Testament animal sacrifices in that it has three benefits, three wonderful benefits that we not should not ever forget. Number one, Christ's sacrifice is superior to the Old Testament animal sacrifices for the benefit of it takes away sin. It doesn't merely cover sin, it takes it away. Number two, it needs not to be repeated. Christ's crucifixion work needs not to be repeated. In fact, it cannot be repeated. Benefit three, it opens the way to God. The blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross makes the way to God's holy presence possible for the believer who is garbed in Christ's righteousness. Last time in the chapter, we also noted that there are three gracious invitations which we have from a gracious God. Number one is the invitation to draw near to him. Number two, the invitation to hold fast to the truth. And number three, the invitation to consider one another. As we make decisions about what we'll do with Lord's Day morning hours and afternoon hours and weekday hours between Lord's Days, we consider one another and what would benefit each other, you as a brother or me as a sister or whoever, that we would think beyond ourselves and consider one another. So those are three gracious invitations we've seen in the chapter, to draw near, to hold fast, and to consider one another. And additionally, still by way of review, in the last sermon in chapter 10, we observed three exhortations. An exhortation is a strong calling to something. Uh, an exhortation is a, an urgent appeal. And the three observed exhortations in chapter 10 that we have seen not to drift from the word, not to doubt the word, and not to become dull to the word. That's what we saw last time in the chapter, not to drift from the word, not to doubt the word, and not to become dull to the word. And now as we jump back into Hebrews chapter 10 for the second of two messages we add one more exhortation to do not drift from the word, do not doubt the word, and do not become dull to the word. And this is the exhortation, do not despise the word. Do not despise the word. And you may be saying, Pastor Rob, what would it look like if I were to despise the word of God? What would it look like if another brother or sister in Christ were to despise the word of God? What would, what would that look like? Well, we see in the, in the chapter that it looks like at least four things. Number one, it's to go on willfully sinning. We see that in verse 26. I'll let your eye go to that verse in chapter 10 as I'm preaching. The second way to despise the word is to trample underfoot the Son of God. To trample underfoot the Son of God. I see that in verse 29a of chapter 10. The third way to despise the word is to regard the blood of Christ as unclean. I see that in verse 29b of chapter 10. And the fourth way that despising the word looks like is to insult 
the spirit of grace. And I see that in the third part of verse 29 in our chapter 10. And so all of these ways of despising the word of God that we are to avoid at all costs, all of these uh, dis, uh, being dis, uh, despising God's word is deliberate. It's not accidental. It's arrogant. It's disrespectful. It's blasphemous. It's offensive to the Trinity. It's disgraceful. And it is testimony killing. When we despise the word of God, serious things happen. And it all starts, this despising of the word of God for true believers all starts with drifting from the word, doubting the word, and becoming dull to the word. Such is the situation of the backslidden Christian, the person who's redeemed, saved, converted, regenerated, but is nonetheless backslidden has lost Jesus Christ as first love. That is the state of being a backslidden Christian, a state that none of us should ever allow ourselves to find ourselves in that state. And so what can the backslidden Christian expect from God if he or she doesn't return to the word and doesn't return to Christ who is the center of the word? What can a backslidden Christian Expect? Well, severe discipline. That's what chapter 12 will depict for us in future sermons, a severe uh, discipline. Um, There are some children I see at the mall, uh, or I see sometimes even at church or other settings that need a spanking. But I never spank them because they're not my children. When you are... God's adoptive child, he loves you so much that he'll spank you when you need a spanking. He'll call you out of backsliddenness when you need to have the fire of love and obedience to Christ rekindled. Severe discipline or spiritual spanking is a sign not of uh, rejection by God the Father, but of love and acceptance by God the Father. And so, put another way, this severe spiritual spanking for the backslidden Christian. It says in verse 27a of chapter 10, it's called a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Not a heaven and hell judgment, but a spiritual spanking judgment when a backslidden Christian needs to be spiritually spanked by God. It's called the fury of a fire in verse 27 of our chapter part B. It's called a severer punishment in 29 verse A. It's called vengeance. That would be holy vengeance in verse 30, part A of our chapter. It's called judgment or judge in verse 30, part B. And this spanking, this spiritual chastening that God the Father will give out to the backslidden Christian to call her or him back to walking in the ways of the Lord is called a terrifying thing in verse 31. And so is very important that I point out at this point that a backslidden believer has become word-drifted, become word-doubted, become word-dulled, and become word-despised. They should expect a spiritual spanking, but they should not expect 
a canceling of a grace-given salvation to them in the first place. When we backslide and don't put Jesus first and disregard the word of God, it's not that God disowns us, but he chastens us, he spanks us, he corrects us so that we'll walk close to him again and honor the son by whom we are saved. Now, one of the major themes of the whole book of Hebrews is this. God has spoken. Are you responding to his word? The first readers of the book of Hebrews, the, they could say to each other when they read the epistle, God has spoken. Are we listening to God's words? But nonetheless, all these centuries later, as the book is read and preached from this pulpit for the last year or more, we can say to each other, God has spoken in his word. Are we listening? Are we obeying? Are we responding? It was Dr. William Culbertson, a former president of the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, who is now long with the Lord. He used to warn the students at Moody about the sad consequences of forgiven sins. Did you hear that? He warned the students of the sad consequences of forgiven sins. The sad consequences of forgiven sins. You see, when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but that doesn't mitigate or change certain consequences in certain things. It's like the farm boy I've told you about before who lied in the community and dishonored his family name. And his daddy took him out to the barn with a spike and a sledgehammer. He said, son, I want you to pound this spike into the barn door. So the boy worked at it and pounded the spike into the barn door. And then his daddy said, now I want you to pull the spike out. He said, dad, it's going to be hard. He said, but you can do it. I'm, I'm going to watch you do it. Pull the spike out of the barn. And so the boy did. And then the daddy said, now, Make the hole go away. Boy couldn't make the hole go away. That was the daddy's point. That although God forgives sin, in some cases there's a hole that's left behind in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And so Culbertson, Dr. Culbertson said, beware of the sad consequences of forgiven sin. Which means avoid sin at all costs as you can. Don't try to get as near to it as you can get without sinning. Try to get as far away from it as you possibly can. I've told you about the rich uh, baroness in Long Island outside of New York City who wanted to hire a chauffeur for a limousine to drive her around Manhattan. She put an ad in the New York Times that a chauffeur was needed and gave the address, and they would come out by appointment. And the first driver, she said, here's my limo, here's my circular driveway. It has a, a brick wall around the circular driveway. How close, if you were my driver, how close could you get my limo to that wall without scraping it? He goes, oh, I'm a very good driver, ma'am. I could probably get within two feet. Okay, thanks anyways. You're not hired. Next man comes out, same question. He says, I've been driven limousines for many years. I could get within a foot of your wall and not scrape it. He goes, thanks anyway. Thanks for coming out. You're not hired. Third man comes out. He's looks it over, and she asks him the same question. He says, I don't know, ma'am, how close I could get to that wall without scraping your limo, but if I was your chauffeur, I would seek to keep your limo as far away from that wall as I possibly could. <laughs> You're hired. So we should avoid 
sin as best we can, and even the appearance of sin. And when you talk about Dr. Culbertson's warning to the Moody Bible Institute students years back, when he said, be warned about the sad consequences of forgiven sins, he pointed to people like Adam and Eve in Scripture, and Moses, King David, the sad consequences of forgiven sins. So what should a believer like you or me do if we sense that we have in any way despised the word by drifting from it, by doubting it, by being dull toward it, or despising it? What should we do? We should repent. (laughs) We should stop in our tracks, turn 180 degrees, and go in the opposite direction. Repentance in Scripture is not just feeling bad about sinning. Repentance in Scripture is feeling bad about sinning such that it changes your direction, such as you turn your back on what you were moving toward in sin and you go the opposite direction toward holiness, toward God and his word. That's the remedy for being a backslidden believer. That's the solution is to repent in the strength and grace of the Lord to seek his mercy and his forgiveness that are both available to us in his grace as found in the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ, repent. Maybe there be some in the sound of my voice this morning. You're saved. You know you've transferred your trust to Christ alone for salvation, but for whatever reasons, you've come to be backslidden. You've seen perhaps some of the serious consequences of forgiven sin in your life story. And you want to come back. This is the morning to come back. This is the morning to believe that God's grace is big enough. This is the morning to understand that Christ shed his blood for those sins that you're battling. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so while it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands, the Lord's hands for chastening, It's a wonderful thing to fall into his hands for cleansing, to fall into his hands for restoration. David in the Old Testament, King David, in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 13, second half of the verse, said, Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. That was David's prayer, and that could be your prayer. Let me fall now into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. Maybe this is a morning of you at home or you here in the sanctuary choosing to fall into the hand of God because you know his mercies are very great towards sinners. That would be a great verse to memorize. First Chronicles 21, 13 Part B, let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. So, we've seen, by way of review, gracious invitations. We've seen, by way of review, solemn exhortations. And now, to conclude this sermon, we're going to see encouraging confirmation. Don't we need encouraging confirmation? I know I need that all the time. I need to know that 
I have encouragement in the scriptures from God, my heavenly Father, and Jesus Christ, my Savior, that he has encouragement for me and confirmation for me as a believer. And as you look at chapter 10, verse 32 to 39, please follow as I read these verses. That's chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. This is a reference to the literal persecution that the first readers of the epistles of the Hebrews experienced. Lost jobs, lost income, lost property, lost family relationships, lost friends, lost housing. Going on. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith." And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. For we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The original context for these verses given to the first readers of this book was to do with persecution. But equally, the truths that I've just read apply to the difficult and uh, challenging days in which we live in a global pandemic with money so tight and employment so high and illness uh, ramping up and people's casualties, the number of casualties growing, that we need to live by faith. We need to have our eye firmly on what's happening now to be wise and thoughtful and prudent, but our eyes also on what is to come, heaven, which will have no disease, no pandemic, no shortage of employment in the glorifying of God for eternity. And so there is this encouraging confirmation in verses 32 to 39 to end the chapter. And I need to hasten to say that whoever wrote, humanly speaking, whoever wrote the epistle of the Hebrews, there's debate upon whether it was Apostle Paul or someone else. But who, the human author, whoever he was, moved along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote Hebrews, he believed that the first readers of the book were true Christians. They had shown themselves to be willing to suffer loss and persecution. By the way, that's still the litmus test of whether someone's a fake, phony, or real and genuine believer, is when the heat of pressure and opposition comes up, the fake and phony fall away. But the real and genuine believer persevere in suffering, never denying their Savior. So the original reader, the humanly speaking, the original reader of, uh, was tempted to go back to Judaism to try to take the heat off with respect to being persecuted. But the original human author, moved by the Spirit of God, believed that the first readers of the Hebrews were truly saved. They weren't fakers. They were honest, genuine believers in Jesus Christ who struggled like we all do. And so chapter 10 ends with a confirmation and an encouragement, because just like the first readers need a confirmation and encouragement in the persecution, we today need confirmation and encouragement in a pandemic. 
Not sure if our lives as we once knew them will ever be restored. We need encouraging confirmation this morning. And if chapter 10, verses 1 to 31, were the spoonful of Buckley's cough mixture, you know what that tastes like. Then verses 32 to 39 that end chapter 10 are the, is the spoonful of honey. The first 31 verses of chapter 10 are more like Buckley's, but the last verses of the chapter are more like honey, easier to swallow, welcomed. And it was not expected that Christians addressed by the book of Hebrews were going to drift from or doubt or become dull to or despise the word of God. It wasn't expected that they would do any of those things. So what is written in the chapter is not a curative, it's a preventative. That's why, if we can, we go to the dentist twice a year, right? If we can. For preventative dentistry. We just don't go to the dentist when we have a toothache. But hopefully we can go to the dentist to have things checked out before we have a toothache. Chapter 10 is like that. Chapter 10 is a preventative against backslidden Christians, not a curative only for them. And the encouraging confirmation that I want to point out to you in these last few minutes of the message is that the secret of victory in the Christian life was and still is endurance and faith. Look again at verse 36, would you? For you have need of endurance, there it is, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And then going back to verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured, there it is, endured a great conflict of sufferings. So when you as a believer marry together endurance in Christ with um, faith in Christ, then you've got something. You've got encouraging confirmation. And that's what we see if we go back to chapter 6 in the book. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 15. You listen as I read verses 12 and 15 of chapter 6, where you see the marrying there as well of endurance and faith. You ready? 6.12, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Skipping down to verse 15. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So the encouraging confirmation for us this morning, as we avoid being backslidden Christians, as we respond to God's gracious invitations, is to work and to pray for the victory that comes out of endurance in Christ and out of faith in Christ. This is a winning combination, endurance plus faith. And now I want to just preview very quickly with you chapters 11 to 13. Hebrews is 13 chapters long. Today we're finishing chapter 10. So that leaves us chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13 to cover still. Let's preview 11, 12, and 13. In these chapters, the writer of the book of Hebrews will focus on faith and how believers must not just be saved by faith, but we must also live by faith after we are saved. You do know that, right? Faith in Christ is what gains us salvation by God's grace. But once we've gained salvation by God's grace, we are to still live by faith. Sanctification is a life of faith in Christ. And a believer who is characterized 
by a lack of faith in his or her experiential sanctification, wastes his or her limited years on earth before going to heaven. Did you hear what I just said? Chapters 11 to 13 are going to warn us that if we stop living by faith after we've been saved by faith, then we waste our limited time here on earth. And such a believer who rejects living by faith as his or her typical life pattern usually, not always, but usually goes back to his or her old ways. And in so doing, squanders and misuses God's grace. Such a believer turns his or her back on God's will and finds reasons not to obey the commands of Scripture and cares little about living for Jesus Christ. That's the danger that chapters 11, 12, and 13 are going to warn us about, not to waste our lives. And I can tell you, as a pastor of 33 years, it's always a very sad thing for me to funeralize a church member who has wasted grace who has not obeyed sanctification truth as found in God's word, and who has not bothered to live for Christ. It's a very sad thing to stand with that person's casket between the pulpit and the people. And as an under-shepherd, it's very hollow in my heart to bury the spiritually growth-stunted Christian who has evidently chosen to walk by sight and not by faith. As you preach that kind of a sermon, you find it being choked off by the circumstances that everybody in the room faces. It chokes the funeral message off to preach the funeral service for a Christian who has spent years wandering in the wilderness of waste and self. Please don't be that Christian. And so wrapping this up, in Hebrews chapter 10, we have noted three benefits which evidence that Jesus Christ's sacrifice is superior to the Old Testament animal sacrifices. You ready? Benefit one, Christ's sacrifice takes away sin. Aren't you glad? Benefit two, Christ's sacrifice needs not to be repeated and in fact cannot be repeated. Benefit three, Christ's sacrifice opens the way to God. And not just a crack in the door, but The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom as Jesus Christ paid for our sin on the cross with his blood, symbolizing and visualizing that the access that was formerly blocked by that curtain, that veil to the Holy of Holies and the average Jew, was no longer a barricade, no longer a blockage. And so the benefit of Jesus' sacrifices opens the way to God. God hears your prayers. Not just in this sanctuary. Wherever you pray, God hears you. I can top that. God lives in you if you're saved. (laughs) The Spirit of God takes up residence in you. So wherever you go, God goes into that situation because the Spirit of God is living in you. God, you bring God to your marriage. You bring God to your parenting. You bring God to your ministries. You bring God to your workplaces. You bring God to fresh market and super value and tops. You bring God wherever you go. (laughs) The Christ's sacrifice opens the way to God, that God would actually take up housing in you, 
never to be evicted. <laughs> Amazing. And then we've seen takeaways in the chapter. We've seen, as I mentioned, these wonderful invitations that are for each of us, not just for super spiritual Christians, but these invitations from God are for the youngest Christian in the faith and the eldest Christian in the faith. What are the invitations? God says, draw near. God says, hold fast. God says, consider one another. But there's more in this chapter by way of review. There are exhortations, there are warnings to the true Christians. Don't drift from the word of God. Don't doubt the word of God. Don't become dull to the word of God. Don't despise the word of God. Beware the sad consequences of forgiven sins by avoiding sin at all costs. There are also confirmations that we see in the chapter. Endure and have faith. Live by faith. Don't waste your living life living only by sight. Love and respect God for his grace and don't waste it. Be obedient. Don't excuse yourself from Bible commands as they're as if they're for someone else but not you. Want, desire God's will. Don't approach God's will for you as take it or leave it, like an eBay purchase, 30-day trial can return for any reason. That's not God's will. God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect for each of us, tailor-made for each of our personalities and our temperaments and our spheres of influence and our spiritual gifting. Want that will. Pursue that will. Discover that will. Live that will. Live for Christ. Don't leave persons who meet you thinking you're either a fake Christian or a hypocritical Christian. I've told you before about Jim Elliott, no human relation to me the martyred missionary to the Alka Indians in South America. He said in his journal, I paraphrase, Lord, make me a crisis man, a fork in the road, that everyone who meets me is forced to make a decision about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jim Elliott didn't waste his life. None of us will waste our lives or drift into backsliddenness if we heed the message of this chapter, taking it to heart. I believe you will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that Jesus Christ's sacrifice is so much superior. Thank you that it takes away our sin and can never be repeated. Thank you that it opens the way to you, Lord, for us. We want to re respond to your invitations to draw near, to hold fast, to consider one another. Lord, help us never to drift from your word or to doubt it, never to become dull to it, Lord, and never to despise it. Lord, may we hate sin and turn from it as far away as possible. Give us endurance and faith in you. 
Help us not to waste our redeemed lives, but to love your grace and to respect your grace and to be dispensers of your grace to others. Lord, make us more obedient. Lord, give us a greater yearning for your will. And Lord, help us to live authentic Christian lives so that no one, skeptical or otherwise, could look at us and say, is he really for real? Is she really legit? Help it to be evident that we are saved by the blood of the Lamb and that we are being sanctified by the Spirit of God for the glory of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name and God's flock said, Amen.